First Peter chapter four, please. Tonight, First Peter chapter four. This is the fifth benchmark of discipleship that we've been considering. We've looked at trusting, belonging, growing, serving, and now sharing. And the first part of that last week was the word generosity. That if we have come to experience the grace of God, it has liberated us from the cares of this world so that we might live for eternity. And, and the, the deeper that truth penetrates into our heart and changes our value system, uh, we will be liberated to freely give of the things that God has entrusted to us because we view them as seed that he has given us to sow for a harvest of righteousness. Instead of viewing the things we have merely as consumables for us, we'll, we see them as a provision from God to provide for our needs, but also to be used to, uh, to invest in eternally significant things. Uh, benevolence for those in need, for the advance of his work, uh, for the showing of Christian love. So, so... Um, I know that uh, we, we can get queasy when we talk about this kind of stuff, right? Because sometimes I think people have, um, have misused the biblical teaching on stewardship. I, I talked last week about uh, sometimes churches doing programs that are really sort of designed to fleece the flock, to, to try to squeeze them by guilt to get more out of them. Uh, and and I hope uh, that that's not been the case. Um, we uh, going back prior to my time, we have tried as a as a ministry to focus on uh, it as a Christian responsibility before God to live by faith in this way, rather than than to uh, have it be a a mechanism by which you fund and budget things. It's really about helping people live for eternity, helping them see the value of using what God has entrusted to them as a tool rather than living in this world as if those things are masters. Right? We're not owned by what we have. What we have has been entrusted to us so that we might use it. It's actually all God's anyway. And he has given to us uh, resources that we might use, and we should, we should be open-handed with those uh, for his glory. And I think it really, I'm not going to re-preach the whole thing, but the basic connection I want us to see, right? Matthew 6, Jesus talks about laying up in treasure in heaven, so we're living by faith that what we, what we actually use for him has not been lost, Right. If if I go, you know, if I drive through McDonald's and pay a dollar thirty-seven for a diet coke, I've taken that money and it's it's gone. Right? When when I use what he's given to me for things that would qualify as laying up treasure in heaven, they're not gone. Right? The one has just been expended, the other's been invested. That's a, that's a life of faith and trust and confidence in God, and therefore we can approach things differently than the world. And, and that's why in Colossians 1, 
It talks about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints because of the hope that is laid up for you. Right? The, the, the love toward the saints is anchored in the hope that you have. In Galatians 6, when Paul talks about sharing with those, right? So if you've been taught, you share with those who teach, and he puts it right in the context of sowing and reaping. Right? What we sow, we'll reap. So it's always motivated by faith. It's always an issue of trusting God and, and therefore not living as if we are the sole uh, the sole person responsible for providing for us and caring for us, that actually God is committed to the care of his people. We can trust him. Because if we think we're the only ones doing, I'm the only one who's going to care for myself, I'm the only one who's going to care for my family, I'm the only one responsible for caring for me when I get older, I, I bear all of this burden, then you're clearly going to be you're going to be wrapping your arms around things because you're not going to be ready to hand it away unless you're confident, like Paul said to the Philippians, that my God will supply all of your needs through his riches in Christ Jesus. And he says that in the context of them sharing with him in the ministry that he's involved in. Right? You have shared in that because God is able to meet every need of yours, and they live trusting that. So, so I'm saying all that to say that's why this would fit in a benchmark of discipleship. If a believer hasn't crossed that line from an old life of grab and acquire and consume to give and invest and share, Right then, it's it's a it's a it's an indication of a lack of growth. Right, because if we're not faithful with little things, we won't be entrusted with more. And 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 Jesus, uh, I've actually never done the count, so I'll just tell you what people say. Right, he talks about money more than he talks about heaven or hell because it's actually a window into our soul. It's a window into what matters most to us. Are we controlled by this world or are we actually, have we been freed by the promises of God to live in light of the next? And that's a major step of growth. It's a major benchmark in the disciple-making process. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9. Because here's the second word in this, this uh, cluster, and that's the word hospitality. Look at verse 9 of chapter 4. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. And, and there's a sense in which I almost lump these two together uh, because, for instance, Romans chapter 12 and verse 13 puts them in the same, in almost like a couplet. It says, uh, contributing to the needs of the saints, pursuing hospitality, right? It's a demonstration of genuine love for believers. But I think there's, I think, I think there's enough of a distinction between them that it's worthy of zeroing in on this as a part of the cultivation of a life in the assembly and in the community of believers. So 
Let me just take a moment and talk about the meaning of hospitality. Uh, it's uh, the word is the word that is translated hospitality, or there's actually two Greek words that are translated hospitality show up like six times in the New Testament. Uh, most of them are the one word which has sort of the feel of, of love of strangers. The other is to be thoughtful or, or think of or care for strangers. So, so basically the idea is that there's someone who's a, a foreigner or a visitor and it's your stance toward them, right? You, you have uh, a, a care for them or a love of them in some way that would seek to meet their needs. So most see the primary focus of hospitality as, as caring for those uh, who may be traveling or without the kind of basic necessities First Timothy chapter 6 would talk about, having food and covering, be content. And someone finds themselves without those basics and others, other people uh, open up theirs for them, right? That's the, the point of hospitality. You're welcoming them in in that way. Um, there's, a, there's clearly some cultural compa- uh, compartments of it that, um, that are different than our day. Right. Uh, and, and some of the windows into that is when you read the Old Testament and you see, uh, what would be probably be strange things for us. Right. A group of people show up into a city and someone feels obligated to take them into their home. Right. That's what happens, uh, with the, the priest in the book of Judges. That's what happens with Lot and the messengers that come in. Uh, that there's, there's sort of this, um, there's this obligation to welcome the stranger, right? In fact, the scripture sort of incorporated it as a value system that they would be looking out for and remembering the, the stranger or sojourner. And actually, in fact, in Israel, it was sort of uh, incorporated into their system because they too had been strangers in the land of Egypt. And their forefathers had been strangers in the land that they traveled. Remember, Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees and traveled really sort of as a nomad. So he was living based on the hospitality of the peoples in the, in the land around him. And so, so it was really incorporated as a, a value of their culture in that way that, that to sin against, to not do was viewed as a sin right? To close your home, to close your resources to the person who may be in need was actually viewed as a social sin. And, and that was because of probably the more communal nature of the culture. But also clearly, uh, you know, we live in a culture where people are actually providing a lot of the services that people would have been dependent on the community for. <laughs> Right. Nobody was pulling into Bethlehem, grabbing a hamburger at Chick-fil-A or, or McDonald's and pulling up to the Hampton Inn. Right. Someone comes to Allen Park. They can roll through McDonald's, go check in at the Hampton Inn. And we think people are supposed to take care of that stuff for themselves. Right. I'm not asked to show of hands, but I mean, someone walked into the service tonight. You started to talk to him after this. Yeah. I just came into town. I drove up from Cincinnati and. So how long are you going to be here? Well, I'm not sure yet. 
Where are you staying? Well, I'm not sure yet. We'd be looking at it like, what's wrong with you? Right? Our culture would be going, that's your responsibility. And now you failed to keep your responsibility. So why should I have to bail you out? Right? Because we have a privatized sort of individual rights kind of thing. Right? And, and not a sense of commitment to the community and to the welfare of others. Right? And, and so there's, there's differences in our mind about how this would be fleshed out, but it should be the disposition of our heart to have a heart for the care of those who may be without some of those basic necessities for some reason. Right? So clearly, uh, an immediate kind of application would be for missionaries who are traveling, uh, for people who are traveling on behalf of the gospel in some way, or uh, traveling doing ministry, or it might be uh, believers who are coming to this area trying to uh, move here and haven't settled in, right? There would be those kinds of hospitality types of things here. But here's what I would caution against. Well, that might be its sort of primary significance in the scriptures. I don't think that's its exclusive significance. Because look at the language in, in chapter 4, verse 9. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. So he's actually talking to a group of people and telling them to practice hospitality with one another. So it's not just like, hey, if somebody you don't know shows up or somebody's on the road for Jesus, do this. Yes, that's true. But there also is supposed to be this one another kind of display of hospitality, that there's actually a kind of heart to, to show uh, that kind of welcome and, and care to one another as believers within the local assembly. And again, there are probably some cultural components about that in terms of the era. They didn't have church buildings. So if the church was going to gather, somebody was going to be showing hospitality. Right? I mean, they didn't have a place where they met. It was actually going to be someone opened up their home and people gathered there. So people would be showing hospitality in that way. Uh, clearly, there seem to be occasions where they would be using their homes, and I'm going to come back to it, but they were using their homes in ways that were to advance uh, the work of Christ. So, so here's the thing I'd say is it's not just like, okay, if you hear that a missionary is coming into town, you should be hospitable, or if you think there's, you know, like the, the summer interns are showing up, you should be hospitable, or that we've got men coming in for the conference, you know, we should be hospitable. All of those, I'd say, yes, 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 right? Those actually would be a part of practicing hospitality as it's laid out in the scriptures, but it also would be an intra-congregational practice of hospitality. It would be something that we're doing with one another in order to serve each other. And I think uh, probably would be appropriate since we do have a building, but when we gather, there are people who need to actually host and serve in the hospitality that's happening. It would be one way in which we would do it in the, in the church of Christ. So 
so why do we do it? Okay, let me, let me start with an overarching answer that has to do with the importance of it. Uh, and, and, and then some specifics as to what, what are we trying to accomplish, right? So um, it's two kinds of whys. <laughs> Why do we do it in terms of an ultimate sense? And then what are we trying to accomplish when we do it based on what the scriptures say? And, and when we look at the New Testament, I think we can see the importance of this responsibility partly by the repetition of the command. Already alluded to Romans chapter 12 and verse 13 as an expression of genuine love. Let your love be without hypocrisy. Then comes a whole series of commands, two of which are contributing to the needs of the saints and pursuing or practicing hospitality. So the sincerity of our love as believers is evidenced in the practice of hospitality. We see one here in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 9 that we're told to do so without complaint toward one another. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 2 tells us to practice it. All right, so here's one command repeated three different times in the New Testament. And I know, uh, I mean, here's a basic principle. It only had to be said once to make it important. Right, but here's three different writers at three different periods of time in the New Testament era to three different audiences telling them, do this, do this. Right, so on top of the use of the word in the command, it it lays it out as a Christian responsibility. It's also highlighted as a quality or character quality of those who would be leaders in the church. Both 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1 talk about hospitable as a quality of those who would be serving the church. Now, the point I think that we should see there is if these folks are supposed to be examples of the believer— then that means there's a pattern for believers that's supposed to be set and followed, right? It is an important part of the fabric of the church. And here's another one to add to its significance. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, when Paul is talking about putting widows on the list who are widows indeed, do you know what one of the qualifications for them is? That they have practiced hospitality. Right, so, so it's actually supposed to be such an attribute of the women in the church, not just the leaders in the church, but of the women in the church that they have practiced hospitality, that when they find themselves in a position where they need the help of the church, it's one of the things that, that qualifies them as uh, a, a recipient of the church's help. They have been hospitable and helping, and the church should rally to them when they're widows indeed. So you can see the importance of this. This is not, this is not an insignificant thing. It's actually uh, an important thing. But I, here's what I would suggest that when we think about it, when we go, so what's, you know, what's the big deal about it? I would suggest at least two things that we should be thinking about. All right? The first is this, that, that hospitality helps us create a context 
uh, for uh, familial love, right? Or, I mean, you know, the scriptures would talk about love for the brethren in Hebrews chapter 13. And then it says, pursuing hospitality, right? So it's a way in which we're demonstrating our familial care for each other. Because the scriptures treat Christians as a family, so the care which would be given to one's biological family is expected with regard to one's spiritual family. Now, I'm not, uh, I do, I do, that, that could be a more delicate kind of a conversation, but the basic point would be, right, that, that we have a care for one another that would make the same kinds of commitments and sacrifices to be hospitable that we would for our immediate family. And here's where I would say is look at Acts chapter 2 to see that exemplified. All right, when the, when the church has come to Christ, the believers have come to Christ, Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, believers all of a sudden find themselves in need. And what immediately surfaces Right, The believers who have resources are using those resources to meet the needs of them, even so much so that in Acts chapter 6, you have them actually providing meals for those who are widows. Right, That's where the, the whole choice of the seven comes up, is that the church has been using its, its, uh, its resources to care for those who are without, to practice for them the kind of hospitality that would care for their basic needs, right? I mean, and so I, I'd simply say it like this. I mean, if, if family comes into town and has no place to stay, I hope you wouldn't say, I hope that curb's comfortable, right? You'd be saying, stay with us rather than being out on the street, right? That's, that's, that would be natural. Right? If family gets uh, hit with some kind of setback from, prevents them from normal operations like sickness or some kind of financial setback or some kind of uh, traumatic life situation, either a birth or a death. If, if it's your biological family and, and it's functioning properly, you would be saying, Hey, we'll get a meal to you. Or you can come stay with us, right? You would be doing what you needed to do to care for them. And all this is doing is saying we should be thinking the same way about our spiritual family, right? We shouldn't be going, well, you know, they'll fend for themselves. We should be going, how can we help them navigate whatever has hit them in this way, right? How can we, how can we step up to help our brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and it seems clear in the book of Acts that that was one of the radiant elements of the early church's witness to, for Christ, right? Because they were doing this, there were other people who were sitting back and, and, and really being sort of in awe of what was happening which we should, we should probably see that in light of what John 13 says. When Jesus said, if you love me like I have loved you, then all men will know that you're my disciples. 
right? And how did Jesus love us? He, he loved us sacrificially, right? So, so um, letting go of your comfort to show hospitality, letting go of your resources to provide hospitality, those are ways in which we are seeking the good of other people in, and it radiates the love of Christ. It shows the care that we have for one another as a spiritual family. But also there's a sort of a second, if I could put it, so the first is create a context for the display of biblical love between a spiritual family. But another component of it seems to be also building a platform for the spread of the gospel. That, that the exercise of hospitality in the New Testament era also provided a way in which the gospel was being communicated and carried out. I think an example, and this is one where you're, you know, you just have to think about it for a second, right? But remember, they didn't have churches. Acts chapter 5 and verse 42, it says, and they were preaching the Lord Jesus in the temple and from house to house. Now, I know our tenants sometimes have been like, well, that's like that's door-to-door canvassing. That's what they're doing, right? It might have been that. In all probability, it's more like what we see happening in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius. He knows that Peter is going to come and share the gospel. And so it says he gathered his whole household, right? He brought everybody that was sort of under the umbrella of his influence in and that word would mean not just his biological family, but all of those who were employed by him, served with him, were a part of his household. He was bringing them into his home so that they could hear the gospel. Right? And that's actually something that we see happen in, in, uh, in the scriptures. And so here's, uh, we're going we're gonna to take a minute and look at a couple of verses. Let's start in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, all right? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, we'll come back to Philippians 4. So if you need to mark it, mark it. I should have told you that before I got you to turn away from it. But 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And here's, uh, here's a part of what we'd be seeing, I think, implied in what's going on. And, I, and we're just going to stop by this because... Um, it's not uncommon for Christians to start to think that their following of Jesus means that the circle of their hospitality should be restricted to only those who know Christ. And, and so here's, start in verse 9, right? I, here's 5-9. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not mean at all with the immoral people of this world or with covetous or swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or idolater or reviler or drunker or swindler. You might be going, what's this have to do with hospitality? Well, look at that last line of verse 11. Not even to eat with such a one. And again, they're not running down to Longhorn, right? They're, they're certainly not going to, you know, the, the local barbecue joint and, and get their ribs and, and, uh, and pork, right? The, the reality of it is this is them opening up their table for food together, 
And here's the issue that was coming up at Corinth. Some people thought that Paul was saying, separate from all the unbelievers. And Paul says, no, that's not what I was saying. If someone claims to be a believer, then you should withdraw this kind of hospitality and fellowship with them. Because you need to mark off the fact that you can't claim to be a follower of Jesus and be what that category of things is in verse 11. But if a lost person is covetous or a swindler or idolater or immoral, they are simply living true to character. And the responsibility to pass judgment on them is not the church, it's actually God. Look at verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? Remove those who are outside, but those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. All right, so here's, here's what I, I it's, I'm, I'm sort of addressing the objection before we look through a string of passages because you can see this objection uh, in real life in a couple of these passages. That, that people are thinking that you need to put some kind of restriction on your hospitality that you would have a meal with or, or welcome to the table of food those who, who are uh, outside of a relationship with God, so much so that they're described as idolaters, right? I mean, that's... That's the part that we have to recognize. So, so now let me ask you to go to the, the Gospel of Luke in chapter 5. Because I think, uh, you know, Luke wrote the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and the book of Acts. And I think there are threads that, that tie the two together, one of which is this issue, I think, in terms of how the Gospel spread in the book of Acts. And it's spread often through the use of the home as a platform for reaching others. So intentional hospitality for that purpose. Here in Luke chapter 5, start in verse 27. After he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi, or Matthew, sitting in the tax booth, he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. The Pharisees had their scribe and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. All right, so here's Levi coming to Christ and he immediately practices a hospitality for Jesus that's aimed at introducing Jesus to all of his lost friends. Right, so, so he doesn't automatically go. I mean, he, he did, if you look, if you look at verse 28, he did immediately abandon everything about his old life. Right? He, he gave up his career as a tax collector, followed Jesus. 
but immediately wanted to introduce Jesus to the rest of the people that he knew, right? He gives a reception for them so that, so that they can hear about Jesus. Go to chapter 15. Almost the same kind of scenario where the Pharisees are unhappy about it. Look at chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And again, here's the reality of it is there's a, there was a, there was a level of, of, uh, relationship and commonality, even you could say communion over food that they found offensive that Jesus would receive these sinners and eat with them. And, and Jesus' response are three of the most famous parables you and I know. Right, look what, look how verse three starts. So he told them this parable saying, so notice that so <laughs> they said, this man receives sinners and evils. So Jesus told them a parable and he tells them the parable of the lost sheep. And look at the, you know, the sort of the punchline of the parable in verse seven. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Then he tells the parable of the lost coin. And look at verse 10. In the same way, I tell you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then he really gets to the heart of it. He tells the parable of the prodigal son. And that whole parable is designed to be a rebuke of the Pharisees. Because the father is rejoicing over the prodigal who comes back. And who's outside ticked off about it? It's the older self-righteous brother, right? They should have been rejoicing that the prodigal came home. He should have been thrilled that his father would throw this reception for his brother who had repented. But instead, he was outside self-righteously talking about what he had always done. He didn't need to repent. That's the language from earlier in the chapter. Right. So, so what we have to see is that, that this was, this was the pattern, the fabric of how I think the gospel would spread was by this practice of hospitality that would bring into connection with the message of Jesus those who need that message. Look at chapter 19. Because here's actually Jesus capitalizing on the cultural value of hospitality to establish an evangelistic connection, right? This is the story of Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus, so he climbs up the tree. And look at verse four, I'm sorry, verse five. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. You know, and I'm not saying you would do this in every evangelistic encounter, uh, but here's Jesus going, hey, Zacchaeus, you're going to show some hospitality. I'm coming to stay at your house. All right? And it was powerful for, for Zacchaeus that he would do that right? because the Pharisees and the scribes wouldn't have anything to do with Zacchaeus. 
right? They, they, they thought he was outcast. He was, he was slime, right? Cause that's how they react. Look at verse seven. And when they saw it, they all began to grumble saying, he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. I mean, they're offended by Jesus engaging in this in a way that would, would show that Zacchaeus mattered to him. And here's the divine commentary by Jesus. Look down to verse 10. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. I mean, that's, that's Jesus saying, Hey, I came for this reason. Just like he said, you'll go after that one sheep. You'll search for that coin. You'll wait on the porch for that prodigal to come home. I came to seek and to save that which was lost. And you don't care about that lost person. You have set yourself in judgment on them. Do you see why I looked at 1 Corinthians 5 first? Because at the end of 1 Corinthians 5, it says, God will judge those outside the church. It's not your job to judge them. It's your job to bear witness to them. And to bear witness to them, you have to be close enough to do that. Right? You're, you're, you're supposed to be having that. So hospitality among God's people creates a platform for reaching others. It also uh, can be uh, an opportunity for you to use your resources to help those who are spreading the gospel. Uh, John, Third uh, John 5 verses 5 through 8 talk about people who've gone out for the sake of his name and that we ought to uh, we ought to meet their needs in a manner worthy of God, right? They are Christ's ambassadors and representatives. So we ought to treat them in supplying for them as if they're Jesus himself, right? In a manner worthy of God, that we would have that care for those. And that would be an example exemplified in the book of Acts. When Paul goes to Philippi and God opens the heart of Lydia, what does she immediately do? She pleads for them to stay in, his, in her home. She opens up her home to become now the base of operations for the spread of the gospel in the city of Philippi. She immediately opens up her home to exercise that kind of hospitality. And that also seems to be a pattern of it uh, by that, that uh, in a day where they didn't have buildings, they opened up their homes for the hosting of the assembly, I think in whole, but also could be in part. For instance, Aquila and Priscilla are identified as having a congregation in their house in Romans chapter 16 and verse 5 and 1 Corinthians 16, 19. Philemon has a congregation in his house. We know that from the book of Philemon and verse 2. There's a, a lady in Colossae who has a congregation meeting in her home in Colossians chapter four and verse 15, right? So they were opening up their home for the gathering of the assembly. And that, that would be the practice of hospitality. And I think that's still something that all of us can do probably more in part than we could in whole, right? But some, some part of the assembly has a need for a place to meet in order to engage in fellowship and mutual edification and someone in the assembly opens up their home in order to serve them in that way. 
to allow the work of the church to be carried out, right? So that, that's a, a ready aspect of hospitality. Let me go ask you to go back to 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 9. Because there's a, a little phrase in there I want us to see and, and think about as we sort of head toward the landing strip, head toward it, all right? Chapter 4, verse 9, be hospitable to one another without complaint. Okay, so a genuine commitment to the practice of hospitality will require sacrifices of time and resources and freedom. And, and if we're honest, people will sometimes take advantage of the kindness of other people. And that's why toward the end of the first century, there actually were starting to be guidelines about the practice of hospitality that started to be passed among believers. For instance, a, a stay could last no longer than three days without needing to look for work or lodging, right? So somebody couldn't just come to town and become your, you know, your border, right? And, and the church started to talk about how do we handle this? Clearly, 2 Thessalonians 3, there were people taking advantage of the generosity and hospitality of God's people because they weren't working and were expecting people to do things for them. And, and Paul says, if they're not willing to work, they shouldn't eat, right? So it's, 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 it's very possible that it might become something that is starting to be a strain because the lazy are not doing what they ought to or the irresponsible are casting off their irresponsibility to others. Uh, sometimes the, the brunt of it might fall to people who seem to have more resources. And so people constantly go back. And so what might come in the heart is like, why isn't anybody else stepping up to do this? Why, why is this only falling to the same people all the time? And there might be that heart that starts to complain about it. And, and so Peter's saying it should be done without complaint. It should be done in a way that recognizes that God's in control of everything, that they can have confidence in his promises and their service for Christ would be with joy. I, this is, I'll just put this out there, all right? I think probably the greatest problem for this kind of, uh, Abundant practice of hospitality in our culture is pride. Because we put so much emphasis in our culture on having things that people are sometimes afraid to, to put themselves out to the judgment of other people. Well, I, you know, we don't have a house big enough to have people over. We, you know, we can't do what other people can do. So we sort of, exclude ourselves from the practice of it because we've created a cultural standard that is tied to materialism instead of the expression of our heart, right? I think one of the things that would be a blessing for anybody who ever did it is actually go into communities where they don't have much, right? You go, go walk through a village in East Africa where they've got dirt floors in their house and not much else, but you show up and they want to show you warm hospitality. Right? They're, they want to welcome you and care for you and, and 
and they're not expecting, you know, they're, they're not going, well, are they going to, uh, how, how do I compare to this person or that person? That's our problem. We like to think our China isn't nice enough, or we don't have this, or we don't have that, or boy, the house is not what it should be. And we sort of backdoor ourselves away from the kind of hospitality that builds the fabric of relationships and cares for people and opens up the context within which we can be witnesses and fellowship and serve one another. We, we should be able to do it without any kind of a complaining spirit about what we don't have because we're not actually going to be judged by what we don't have. Remember that text in 2 Corinthians 8? It's not according to what you don't have, but what you do have. And what you have is what God wants you to have. I mean, obviously you may have been irresponsible. You might not have some, take all the caveats out of it, right? The reality is you are where you are. You have what you have. God wants you to use it to have a heart of 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 uh, hospitality, All right? So use, we should use our God-given resources to minister to others, right? There, there are constantly people who need help for one reason or another. They're, they're sick or they've had a birth or there's a death or, or they're going through some circumstance and, and you can be a blessing to them by helping meet a need in their life and showing the love of Christ in that kind of hospitality. You can use your God-given resources to provide a place for fellowship and, and evangelism, right? Serve as a host or a supplier to the host if they're having to care for a large group of people, right? Come alongside of and say, hey, listen, let me, can I help you? be able to host this group for God's glory and their edification or some gathering to which you might want to make redemptively significant for your neighbors or for lost friends that you know that you'd like to put them in contact with the believers so that they can actually see the love of Christ being displayed, right? Use use your resources to that end. Use your God-given resources to provide a place to meet the needs of those who've gone out for the sake of his name. House them, feed them, care for their temporal needs, right? Send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. Hospitality is a part of how we engage in intentional evangelism, intentional fellowship, and intentional discipleship. Because what hospitality does is create proximity. Because if you're going to be intentional in evangelism, you have to be near lost people. If you're going to be intentional about fellowship, you have to be near your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you're going to be intentional about discipleship, you have to be near them. Hospitality creates the context for those things to happen. So, so I think it's an important part of starting to bend our lives to the mission of Christ. That's, that's why I've included it as a benchmark in the process. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that there is uh, so much of this that happens regularly here in the life of our body, uh, that, that folks are caring for one another, opening up their home, uh, 
uh, opening up their resources, translating some of their material goods into meeting the needs of others, that, that there are folks who are getting together regularly for meals to, to encourage one another, to, to build each other up in the faith. And Lord, I, I'm thankful for that happening, and I pray that we would excel still more, that we would be intentional about uh, the, the table that we sit down to eat with, eat at, that we might see it as a time uh, for fellowship and discipleship and evangelism, that we might find ways to include others in that so that we can show your love to them, whether they know Christ or don't. Help us to be like Levi. Help us to follow Jesus in pursuing relationships that we can be intentional about communicating uh, the gospel. And uh, help us to be like the church in the book of Acts that readily opened up their, their resources and homes for ministry, whether proclamation or fellowship, prayer. Lord, please deepen that in our church. Help it to extend even more, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.